Please open your copies of God's Word to Romans chapter 16. <clears throat> Romans chapter 16. And we'll read the whole of this chapter together. Romans chapter 16. context we have uh, as he's come to the end of this doctrine drenched <clears throat> and pastoral applied apl- application filled um, epistle to the church at Rome we now come to the last chapter and as is usual with <clears throat> with the apostle Paul giving greetings uh, to all and sundry that might be known to the church he's writing to And uh, in Romans chapter 16, he doesn't hold back. There are many, many he would uh, remind the church of and send greetings. And he would send greetings personally to various people. And that which we'll be looking at uh, this morning with the Lord's help will be verses 17 to 20. Stuck right there in the middle of this long passage of sending salutations and giving greetings. So chapter 16 and verse 1, may it please the Lord to bless us as we hear and read the word of God this morning. I commend unto you Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the church which is at Kenkria, that ye receive her in the Lord as becometh saints, and that ye assist her in whatsoever business she hath need of you. For she hath been a succorer, a helper of many, and of myself also. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers in Christ Jesus, who have for my life laid down their own necks, unto whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Salute my well-beloved Epinatus, which is the firstfruits of Achaia unto Christ. Achaia, a part of Greece. Greet Mary, who bestowed much labor on us. Salute Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles, who were also who also were in Christ before me. Greet Amplias, my beloved in the Lord. Salute Urbane, or Urbane, our helper in Christ, and Stachis, my beloved. Salute Apelles, approved in Christ. Salute them which are of Aristobulus' household. Salute Herodion, my kinsman. Greet them that be of the household of Narcissus, which are in the Lord. Salute Tryphena and Tryphosa, who labor in the Lord. Salute the beloved Persis, which labored much in the Lord. Salute Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. 
Salute Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermas, Patrobas, Hermes, and the brethren which are with them. Salute Philologus and Julia, Nereus and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints which are with them. Salute one another with an holy kiss. The churches of Christ salute you. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses, contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. For your obedience is come abroad unto all men. I am glad, therefore, on your behalf. But yet I would have you wise unto that which is good and simple concerning evil. And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Timotheus, my workfellow, and Lucius, and Jason, and Sosipater, my kinsmen, salute you. I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, salute you in the Lord. Gaius, my host, and of the whole church, saluteth you. Erastus, the chamberlain of the city, saluteth you. And Quartus, a brother. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel, and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest, it is revealed, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. To God only wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. Amen. A glorious ending to a glorious book of the scriptures. Before we come back to read those verses 17 to 20 once again, let us call upon the Lord in prayer, please. Let us pray. Merciful and loving God, in the name of thy Son, we once again approach thee in prayer as a flock, as a congregation of thy people. We thank thee for thy word. We thank thee that it is true, that it is divine, that it has been preserved throughout the centuries, that God speaks to us through it, uh, that we may believe it because it is so faithful. It is the word of God who cannot lie. And we come and we pray, Lord, that thou would help us now to understand, to understand this last pleading and beseeching of the apostle here in this uh, book of Romans. And what would thou say to us? What would thou teach us? We do pray, O Lord, that thou would give us open ears, teachable spirits, and hearts to, pre- to receive the word of God, that thou would receive all the glory. Grant unto me, as we deal with a solemn and a very serious doctrine, that thou would grant that blessing, O God, that thy word will not go forth and not return unto thee, Bearing fruit, water thy word, pour out thy anointing upon thy servant. We pray thee in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Amen. So Romans 16 and verses 17 to 20. Having heard a, a load of names that we're not quite familiar with, these Roman names, Greek names, Middle Eastern names, all mixed up, and we would be hard-pressed to acknowledge them as, as normal names. Well, we might say Priscilla or Phoebe, and, but most of the rest are very foreign to our modern ears. And now Paul comes in verse 17. And brings us these words, verses 17 to 20. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And by good words and fair speeches, Deceive the hearts of the simple. For your obedience is come abroad unto all men, and I am glad, therefore, on your behalf. But yet I would have you wise unto that which is good, and simple concerning evil. And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. There are many, many people in the Church of Christ these days that look at the world around them and have this idea that everything's going to get worse and worse that there, were, there was a great high point in the New Testament, and in many ways it's been going downhill ever since. And, and no doubt that is an effect of the pessimism of dispensational teaching, and maybe other influences. Uh, but it, it is not true that things are getting worse and worse. There are downs and there are ups. There are various movements. If we consider the, the, uh, the Roman Catholic Church and its great power in Europe, in, in the, the height of its power in the 1100s. And then we see that it is broken, it is damaged, it is cut in half in the Reformation uh, there in the early 1500s. And great gospel light poured out upon Europe and has extended from there ever since in the first and the second Reformations. But there have been revivals, there have been great moves of God, there have been little moves of God throughout the centuries. But that idea of it's all a downward slope is neither based upon a knowledge of history, and I've just given you a few pointers there. It's not based upon the knowledge of church history, and it's not based upon what is revealed in the New Testament. According to the New Testament, the New Testament church had to deal with many problems, with many false teachers. Our brother mentioned one this, this morning, Marcion or Marcion, uh, who was a, a great false teacher there in the, in, the, in, the, in the 100s and 200s. 
We're going back even further to the apostolic New Testament church. It's the apostles that are writing to, to us, well, writing to these churches, and, and we read their letters, and make it very clear that the church had to deal with many serious false doctrines and false teachers. And almost every epistle that we have in the New Testament contains a clear warning against false doctrine and against false teachers, against heresy, against error. Because there is a great burden to be placed by God upon any that would stand in the pulpit called to the gospel ministry, that God has their eye especially upon them. Are they teaching the truth? Are they teaching... Are they teaching... Are they preaching the gospel? Are they opening up as much as they're able in the time that they have the, the whole counsel of God? And James 3 and verse 1 is a, is a great warning. It says, My brethren, be not many masters, the word master meaning teachers, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. Because there you are as a preacher, as a teacher, feeding the flock of God, and if you're feeding them a junk diet then their spiritual cholesterol, as it were, is going to go up. Their, their spiritual health is going to go down. But what if you're feeding them food that's not good food? It's a little bit rotten. And then you're going to have spiritual bellyache. And if it's terribly rotten, spiritual death instead of life. Now the Lord has his eyes upon those that fill the pulpit in a very special way, in a very fearful way. And the man that stands in the pulpit must be very fearful before God that they would speak the word of God and only the word of God, neither adding to it nor taking away from it. And therefore, as we've preached before, that every believer must be a good Berean. They must be as the Bereans were. They would listen, they would receive the word, and they would go and check if it is according to the Scriptures. So discernment concerning doctrine is vital for every Christian, because every Christian must know doctrine. We are told again and again that we must grow in the knowledge of God. This is to the New Testament Christian. If you think studying and reading the Bible and studying the Bible is not for you, well, I would say, well, salvation is not for you. Because it's part and parcel. How do you know who the Lord is who saved you? How do you know the glories of the Lord who saved you? Not by some film, not by some uh, little book you can buy from a so-called Christian bookshop, but from the scriptures themselves. Did we not read in our call to worship this morning that a name of Christ, a title of Christ is the Word of God. He is the Word of God incarnate. And he gives us the Word of God that we may read. How do you have that discernment then? You have that discernment by knowing the scriptures. Second Peter verses 1 Second uh, Peter chapter 1 and verse 2, Peter wishes this upon the believers. He says, grace and peace be multiplied unto you. Now we think that's fine, yes please, we'll have that apostolic blessing. But how, he then goes on to say, through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Second Corinthians 10 and verse 5 says this, 
casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Again, it's the knowledge of God as he has revealed himself. Not your opinions, certainly not my opinions, not your philosophies, but the word of God. Colossians 1 and verse 10 Paul says to the church there that you might work, walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And the final quote taken from Romans chapter 11 and verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. There's a common theme here, that we are to have the knowledge of God, we are to increase in the knowledge of God, and we are to use that knowledge of God in our own walk. It informs how we are to walk as Christians. It informs us how we are to discern the men in the pulpit, that they are preaching according to the Word of God that we would be able to discern what's happening in the world and in our own thoughts and cast down those, those proud imaginations of, of the flesh and the world and the devil, that we are to have a knowledge and grow in the knowledge. So we are not only to be well taught, and in this case that's certainly my responsibility, but you are to be teachable, and that's certainly your responsibility, to be absolutely humbled before the word of God. If God says so, it is so. However, in our text today, Paul exhorts us to be discerning, not concerning the man in the pulpit, or not only concerning the man in the pulpit, but concerning our Christian brethren and sisters, our fellow congregants, those that sit in the same building, those whom we share the pew with. And it is something so important that the apostle beseeches us, he pleads with you and he pleads with me and interrupts his wonderful, friendly, intimate chapter of greetings. Having said so many things already... And now he's saying farewell, and he's talking about all those people who are obedient, who are bearing fruit, who love the Lord, who serve the Lord, and it reminds him, it would appear, of those that don't. And now he beseeches them. He gives them, as it were, a final plea before he closes off the letter. And it is a plea for wisdom and a plea for discernment. A plea for wisdom and a discernment. And as the Lord is pleased to help us this morning, we will understand more of this, more understanding uh, how we are to use our godly wisdom and how we are to use our discernment. Firstly then, we see as we open up verse 17, the apostles appeal now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offences contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. Again, the basis of understanding all this is the Scriptures. 
It is the apostolic doctrines. It's the prophetic word of the Old Testament. And so he has an appeal, firstly, for discernment. He beseeches the church at Rome. He beseeches you and me to identify those who are guilty of two sins. Two personal sins against Jesus Christ, I might add. He says those that cause divisions in the church contrary to Scripture and cause offences in the church contrary to Scripture. Division and offences. And so firstly, just look at this, what this divisiveness is then. What is this divisiveness? It divides. There is an old maxim, an old military maxim called divide, divide, divide and conquer. If you have a large army and you can physically divide them, you can cut them up, you'll send your cavalry in between those two sections there and chase that lot off that way. You could send in your arrows to, uh, your, or your archers uh, to attack the frontal flank and those just behind them might, might back off a little bit. So again, another separation. You can send in some artillery to, to attack there. Of course, I'm mixing up the ages of what I'm saying. I am well aware. There wouldn't be bows and arrows and artillery unless they're... Well, that might be Russia in one year's time, but that's another, that's another story. But you're splitting them up. You're splitting up the enemy into groups. You're dividing them, which means, means then you can attack them more easily. You can, you, can, you can pincer them, you can pincer them, you can pincer them, and, and you've destroyed them. It's exactly, of course, what the devil does to the church of Christ. He attempts to. It's to divide and conquer. It's to turn one group of Christians against another group of Christians. And he does that by false doctrine and by false teachers. Yeah. And then there are certain teachers who will exaggerate the importance of one doctrine and then use that against another group of believers or another church or another denomination. Now there is to be discernment and there is to be truth. Absolutely. But that's what the devil does. And the devil does that within a congregation. He would like to divide and conquer. And that's what he does. There have been many congregations that are, that are split and yet still functioning. That others have been split and become two congregations. This congregation itself in 2009 knew of a split. Complicated reasons behind it, as, as I've been able to understand but a split nonetheless. And dividing and conquering, conquering does not benefit the church of Christ. Yes, there are exceptions where we are to separate from false teaching and from apostasy. Absolutely. But even how that is done can cause more division. So what is divisiveness then? As I said, it's, it's not of Christ. And how does it work amongst a congregation? Well, complaining, whispering, backbiting, politics. If there's one thing that should not be in the church of Christ, whether it's at a congregational level, at a session level, at a presbytery level, or whatever it is, is politics. Politics is not of the Lord. It's of man. And see what a mess politicians make. But those that cause division in the flock of Christ 
are looking for something to complain about, anything. We're not talking about people who are using their discernment, see something wrong, raise a genuine biblical theological issue. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about those that sinfully divide, will cause groupings, politics. And it can be on the, the most banal of issues, how someone is dressed, how big their hat is, how their children behave, how late they are, how often they're late. All sorts of matters are used to be critical because that's the point, to criticize, to judge. Even though the Lord says, judge not lest ye be judged. And they will criticize everyone. They will criticize the visitor. They will visit, they will criticize the long congregant. They will criticize the session. They will criticize the minister. But notice what Paul says. They cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine. So they're not scriptural matters. They're not theological matters. As I've just mentioned, there are all sorts of... It's anything. Anything that you can latch on, that you can be critical of, that you can make a comment of. They're not true and reasonable theological complaints. And they're certainly not brought in a way to solve problems. You solve one problem, as it were, and another one will come up. Because it's the heart that's critical. And so such criticism, criticism then where it finds ground in another person, where they see that somebody is easily bent to your ideas, is meant, that's what it's meant to do. It's to win people to your way of thinking, to cause divisions and groups that you then control. It is schism within the church body. Whereas the biblical doctrines that the Apostle Paul is referring to, that, 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 that are to be held to, well, we have a number of them. Ephesians 4 and verse 3 says this about the Christian church and congregation, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Well, neither of those are held to by somebody that causes division. Philippians 2 and verse 2, Fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, which is the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 25, that there should be no schism in the body, and that the members should have the same care one for another. And we could spend a couple of hours going through these, these doctrines that teach us that the flock of Christ is to be a place of love, of long-suffering, forbearance, mercy, kindness, forgiveness, and not fleshly politics. So divisiveness is one thing that he mentions, and that's how we can mark them. That's how we discern them. That's how we understand them. They're divisive, and they cause offenses. Paul mentions something of those offenses, in an earlier chapter, Romans 14 and verse 13, he says, Let us not therefore judge one another anymore. Well, there you go. That's, that's contrary to those that would cause division and offenses. Let us not therefore judge one another anymore. But judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. 
So we're to stop judging one another, but we are to judge ourselves. We are to make judgment of ourselves and our motivations and our actions. And, and as we come back to verse 17, well, we are to make a judgment concerning others as well, but not in the sense, in the sense of discernment, not in the sense of critical judgment. But judge yourself lest you cause offences. That's what he says in Romans 14 and verse 13. The word stumbling block, as it's given there, is translated in our text as causing offences. And the Greek word that's behind that is the word that we get the word scandal from. So therefore, as we understand it from the context of verse 17 of Romans 16, it includes scandalous gossip and criticism, which does not have a godly motivation or intention. It is meant to humiliate It is meant to diminish the good standing of a brother and sister in Christ or even to pull down the preacher and his ministry and all of which are not according to biblical judgments or even genuine biblical criticism. They're not sourced from the scriptures and are in fact, as Paul says, contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned. The ultimate offence then is causing disunity in the body. And when someone causes this sort of disunity, what are they after? We will see shortly. They're after power. They want to rule. They want to rule you. They want to rule the congregation. But that belongs to Christ. And the men whom God, Christ has called to lead the church. So causing disunity, causing people to be offended, causing people to leave. So we've seen then the apostles appeal firstly for discernment and then he moves on very quickly in verse 17 as we come to the close of verse 17, his appeal for avoidance. Avoidance, he says. It's one thing to notice fellow congregants stirring up division and dissent within the congregation, but it's a completely other thing to do something about it. But Paul demands that we do. And I would suggest to you here that Paul is speaking more on a pastoral level. He's advising the believers for their own good. He's not setting up a structure of how the church would deal with it in this passage. There are other passages that would, but not here. He is concerned with your welfare, and that's in stark contrast with those that cause divisions and offences. In the space of 2,000, a space of 2,000 years, and many thousands of kilometres from where he was when he wrote this, this letter... He has more concern for your soul and for your Christian walk and for the good of this flock than those that would cause divisions and offences. So he's saying avoid them because avoiding such people is necessary. Even when you yourself might not be the victim of such division and offence. They may not be talking about you, you think. You may not be the obvious victim of the slander and the criticism, but they wouldn't bring that to you. 
but you must avoid them. Why? Why does Paul say avoid them? Because you are being used by them. Drop by drop, they will convince you of the rightness of their divisive and offensive cause. You will come under their influence because they are very good at it. Because they want to cause division, they will practice to cause division. And so for your own spiritual health and your own spiritual safety, Paul is saying, avoid spending time with them. For the glory of Christ, when we take the whole passage together, he's saying, do not listen to their criticisms and to their gospel. For the unity of their congregation, avoid them. Avoid them in church, avoid them outside of church. By all means, greet them, but avoid them, he says. Or I'm adding that to the application. By all means, pray for them, but avoid them. By all means, and he doesn't say that here, but there are other places where it's very clear that you bring unrepented of sin uh, to the church. You make a formal complaint. And yet Paul says here, avoid them. So he's not saying that you're not to. You're not to even speak to them or rebuke them. He's not saying that. You can do that. You can make a formal complaint. But what he's saying is that you personally avoid them. It's a poison chalice. It's barbed wire. You will cut your hand. You will be injured. But notice that that command to mark them that cause divisions and offenses, and then his command to avoid them, is not an option it's apostolic command. It's the command of an apostle of Jesus Christ. And therefore we are to take it very seriously. And we are to do it. That's the apostle's appeal. Very direct. Where did that come from, as it were, in this whole chapter of greetings and salutations? The apostle's appeal, then we'll move on to the apostle's reasoning. He gives a reason for it in verse 18. He says, For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by good works and first speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. So firstly, I would like to open up that verse and say that they are glory stealers. Glory stealers. What do I mean by this? It is to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ that he would save the souls of sinners. It is to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ that he would gather them in as flocks of a congregation. It is to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ that that flock is taught, that they are encouraged, that they are rebuked, that they have the word of God open to them, that they grow in grace, that they grow in fruit of the Spirit. It is to the glory of the living Saviour that he is served, that he is loved, that he is obeyed, that his name is exalted in every service and amongst the people of God. But these would steal that glory. The reason why they cause division and offenses is not merely because they are ignorant of how to live the Christian life. 
it's because they do not serve Christ. Strong language from Paul. For they that are such serve not. They do not serve the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, they do not worship him. They do not obey him. They do not love him. And yet, as we will see towards the end of that verse, they have good words and first speeches that you would think by the fruit of their mouth that they must do. And yet we're not to listen to what they say. We're to look at what they do as regards to division and causing offences contrary to the Scriptures. And it's not merely people who are stubborn in certain ideas. It's because they do not serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the spiritual diagnosis that Paul makes of, of those that within the church causing divisions and causing offences is that indeed these are not true Christians. They are religious churchgoers, yes. They have zeal and they can be as zealous and they can be as emotional and as passionate as the fundamental Muslim and as the, and as the uh, fanatical Hindu, but just as spiritually dead as just as outside of Christ. Because Paul himself says, without any doubt, he doesn't say, for they that are such might be not serving. He's saying, this is how you see. Now that's not to say that everybody who's been guilty of passing on a little bit of gossip is then under this. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that those who have been guilty of, of, of going in with the groups are not directly guilty but they are by association he's saying no those that cause it those that cause the divisions those who are behind the divisions those who are planning the divisions those who are looking for the offences to bring glory to themselves and not to the Lord Jesus Christ they do not follow, do not serve, do not love the Lord Jesus Christ. They do not want Christ to rule his church. They want to rule Christ's church. At the most extreme point. You will know them by their fruit. And the fruit that Paul says that you will, you will mark them by, that you will understand them by, is the division and the offending in Christ's flock. But on the contrary, instead of saying that they serve Christ and they don't, they serve their own belly. They serve their own belly. Now we might think when we hear that word, oh, that they're lovers of food. That's not what he means. It's a term that just means their flesh. They serve their flesh. They serve their own fleshly desires. Their desire for control, their desire for glory, their desire for power, all of which things are of the world. They're of the flesh, they're of the devil. They are not of Christ because they are competitors to Christ, to Christ's people, to Christ's glory. In 1 John 2 verses 15 and 16, which will be the next two verses that we'll examine as we continue in 1 John in a few weeks' time, says this, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. John is just as black and white and very clear. These people are glory stealers, stealing that which belongs to Christ. Their own obedience should belong to Christ. Their own heart should belong to Christ, but it doesn't because they are not of Christ. And then it moves on, they are deceivers. Paul is pulling no punches. They are deceivers. People who you see doing this, they're doing this because they're spiritually dead and all their works are deceptive. They are deceivers and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. That's one way of discerning such people. They know how to talk. They know how to sound good. They can be very, very convincing, but it is not scriptural doctrine. They can make complaints and problems about all sorts of little things, blow them up out of proportion, and then you'll search the scripture to see, where does the Lord say that that's wrong? Where does the Lord say that this has to be done? And you will not find it. It is not It is contrary to the doctrine which you have learned. They speak spiritually, they pray spiritually, but they're called deceivers. And so we can take what the apostle is saying by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We cannot see the person's heart. We cannot read their minds, but Jesus can. And he says, you see this and this, these two terrible sins against the flock of God and against the glory of Christ, then know this and discern that they are deceiving. They are deceivers because they are not of Christ. They're deceivers because they use their mouth to convince people that they are of Christ when they're not. They use their mouth, as Paul says in verse 17, to cause division and offences. They're called deceivers because they deceive. And what are the deceivers out to do? Well, they're out to get information from you. That's why they're talking to you. That's why Paul says, avoid them. They're out to get information from you. And they're out to spread information about you if you're in their crosshairs. And they're certainly out to spread information through you. They want you to believe them. They don't bring the doctrines of Christ to encourage you in the faith. They want you to believe them and they will use all sorts of spiritual sounding reasoning. It sounds so good, it's not in the scriptures. And if they do bring something that's in the scriptures, then just read it, it's out of context or it's twisted. So you are warned by the Apostle Paul. They will deceive you. And how will you be deceived? Well, because Christian... You are gullible. You are gullible. It is, unfortunately, the natural state of nearly every Christian to be gullible. To be easily misled. To easily be deceived. Because we want to believe the best about everyone. We don't want to believe, no, not in our congregation, not in our denomination, not in this city. And indeed, that is Christian doctrine. 
Paul says so in Philippians 4 and verse 8. He says, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of, of a good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Indeed, we are to have a, a kind and honest an optimistic attitude to others. And we are to discern. And we are to discern. To balance that out, we are to discern the divider and the deceiver, and we are to avoid them. Proverbs 14 and verse 15 says something about the gullibility of Christians. It says, The simple believeth every word, but the prudent man, the prudent man looketh well to his going. And that's what verse 17 teaches. We're not to believe every word, but we are to be wise, we're to look well to where we go and how they go. And to emphasize this, the apostle moves further in the following verse, in verse 19. So we've seen the apostle's appeal, the apostle's reasoning, thirdly, the apostle's exhortation. <coughs> He says in verse 19, he says, For your obedience is come abroad unto all men. I am glad therefore on your behalf, but yet I would have you wise unto that which is good and simple concerning evil. And that's the great contrast that he brings before us now. This message is not meant for those that cause division and cause offences in the church of Christ. It's not for those that deceive because they are disobedient to Christ. On the contrary, he, he's speaking to those who are obedient to Christ. For your obedience has come abroad unto all men. They are known as obedient. They are known as Christ-honoring. They are known as, 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 as increasing in the knowledge of Christ, and not just in here, but expressing it in their life and in their words and everything. They have an honest and a true Christian Testimony, and here is the greatest contrast. They walk as children of light, whereas those we've just been looking at walk as children of darkness. It's very black and white, isn't it? It's very black and white. For your obedience has come abroad unto all men, and I'm glad therefore on your behalf. So there is an absolute difference between the children of darkness and the children of light. See that contrast that he sets before us and yet he says this. Secondly, he says, be wise and not simple. You can be a child of light and yet be, be not very wise. Be foolish. But yet I would have you wise unto that which is good and simple concerning evil. So we're not to be gullible. We're not to always think the best. No, we are to discern and to see that which is contrary uh, to the word of God. We're to be wise in those things that are good, are righteous, obedient, and holy. And we are to be simple-minded in things that are evil. We're to be very innocent, almost childlike, not, not, not wanting to understand these things. Unfortunately, we, we have to, to some degree, to discern but we ourselves are to be wise in doing good and simple in evil. 
for the other sort is the exact opposite. They are fools as regards goodness and holiness, but very wise, very shrewd, very cunning and crafty in matters that are evil, that are contrary to Christ. Contrary to the doctrine of Christ, contrary to Christ, they serve not the Lord Jesus Christ. They are looking to divide his flock. They offend his sheep that he has bled and died for. And fourthly, and finally, the apostles' encouragement. The apostles' appeal, the apostles' reasoning, the apostles' exhortation, and finally, and very briefly, the apostles' encouragement. Here we see in verse 20, And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. Now that seems a very contrary thing, a very a very abstract thing to say that he's been speaking about the church he's been speaking about those that are causing division that we're to mark them we're to avoid them we're we're, we're to be wise in all these matters wise and discerning Um, we're not to be gullible and then he says and the God of peace shall bruise Satan Where, where, where did that come from? because it is a work of Satan it's a work of Satan to steal Christ's glory and to cause division in Christ's flock. It is not a work of Christ. It's a work against Christ. It is an anti-Christ work. So we're to do it, and, and therefore he's comparing this with Satan. This is the work of Satan. But he says the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. And so we are to do it God's way. Mark those in the body that are causing division and offences and obey God's command to avoid them and God will be victorious in that situation. You do not give them the oxygen of attention because that's what they want. Do not give them the, the, the fuel of, of having that power over you and through you. Do not allow them to, to slander others through you. That they will put these question marks in your head and then you'll go running off as their messenger to say that exact thing. Don't be gullible. Be wise in Christ. If we avoid them, if we cut them off as it were, God shall be victorious. God shall be ultimately victorious over all the works of Satan, but including those that cause division and offenses in the church of Jesus Christ. How long will such people remain in the church? Well, for as long as you don't avoid them. If you, don't, if, you, if you disobey the command of the apostle in verse 17 and you don't avoid them, you spend time with them, you go to their house, you listen to their stories and, the, and their deceit and their lies and their division, they will remain in the church. And when you don't avoid them, as I've already mentioned, you are tainted by them and you are co-guilty with them. And so we are to avoid them and you will also avoid having poison in your ears and in your heart. You will be able to serve the Lord Jesus Christ much better. 
and God will be victorious over the situation. So we ought to do it God's way. We're not to suddenly think, well, we're going to set up our own little group against them. God forbid fighting fire with fire. No, no. We fight fire. We don't fight. It's not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. And God will have his way, secondly. We're to do it God's way, and God will have his way, as we read there in verse 20. And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. Oh, praise God, that it won't be long. This grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. That's what we need. We need the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Until it pleases God to bless your efforts to avoid those that would cause division... He will grant your peace and he will grant you grace. He will grant you grace to be strong, strong to mark them and to avoid them. That's not easy. To discern, you say, no, that can't be right, but it is. You've discerned it, you've marked it, you've seen the behavior, you know that this is the case and you know what the Lord says in his word and then to avoid them, that's not easy. But he will grant you grace to be strong. And he will grant you grace, because when you avoid them, they will come after you. He will grant you grace, because he will use these difficulties in your life, in the church life, in the Christian life, to strengthen you, to sharpen your discernment, to make you a scripturally wise Christian. And it will bring glory to the name of Christ in your life and in the church. For your obedience has come abroad unto all men, and I am glad, therefore, on your behalf. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses, contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we... Come solemnly before thy throne, having opened up this, this plea of the apostle for the church of Christ, for its unity, its strength, for its wisdom, for the purging of those that are contrary to Christ and to his word. And yet, Lord, we're weak and we are fearful. And we come for that grace that thou hast promised us in thy word. That we would have that wisdom and we would have that boldness to obey thee. To have the fear of God more than the fear of man. That Christ would be exalted and that we would become more like Christ. Help us, Lord. Grant that grace. That strength. Can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth us. Lord Jesus, give us that strength so that thou shalt receive all the glory owed to thee, that all honor and glory and power and might be thine forever and ever. Amen.